Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-dualistic, compassionate, contemplative faith life. My name is Dom Fay and uh, Sue Grimmett and Peter Catterbeth here. Thanks for making time in the middle of this ongoing pandemic, guys. Good to see you, Dom. Thanks, Dom. It's great to be here. And uh, this is a bit of a first for the On The Way podcast today because we are actually uh, joined by a guest in the, I guess, keeping up with the modern times at the moment, uh, joining us virtually from um, the ACT from Canberra at the moment is Reverend Dr. Sarah Batchelard, Anglican priest, author and theologian, leader of Benedictus Contemplative Church in Canberra, returning to the podcast. Sarah, thank you for making time for us uh, once again. Thanks, Dom. Hi, Peter and Sue. It's nice to be with you. Now, last time we did uh, speak with you, Sarah, we discussed the practices that can make up a prayer life um, and, and how maybe they're different to what many of us are taught in, in a religious life growing up. Um, today, we want to look, I suppose, more at the, the fruits of what a contemplative life actually are and uh, how they can really equip us in, in not just the current time we're in, but the uncertainty of whatever lies ahead as well. Just as a, a starting point, though, Sarah, I was interested in asking you um, whether over the past couple of months you found it easier or, or more difficult to live a contemplative life. <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I think uh, it feels a bit mixed to me. Um, so in some senses it's perhaps been a little easier to have a rhythm that I set because there are fewer um, interruptions or, you know, people don't just turn up at your office anymore and, and there are um, perhaps fewer um, meetings and, and groups, although there are still plenty of online activities. Um, but I've one of the things we've done actually since going online as Benedictus is to start offering a regular evening um online meditation at 5.30 and uh, that's been a great rhythm for me to, to get in that evening meditation, which is often a difficult one to get in. But it's interesting how many people have been picking up on that opportunity and and makes me realise that something like the evening meditation is almost easier online because people aren't driving across a city to, you know, gather anywhere. Um, so we've, we've had over 30 people at a 5.30 half-hour meditation um, in the evening. So there's that sense in which it's it's easier and there's a there's a kind of growing um, commitment. And But in other ways, it, it does feel a bit harder. Um, and I can't quite put my finger on what that's about. Um, I think maybe it is lots of unfamiliar ways of doing things and so that kind of throws you a bit. Um, yeah, it's a, it, so I'm finding it a little mixed. I think the emotional turbulence of the time has made, uh, I suppose, all of this difficult for many people. I know, I think I mentioned maybe on the last podcast we did, that it felt initially like there was a lot of pressure to learn a new language or come up with some sort of a masterpiece in this sort of global slowdown we're in. Um, but there is this collective hum of anxiety that has sort of hovered and uncertainty that sort of hovered over um, everyone at the moment. Have you found that, the, I guess the contemplative practices that make up your life, have you found that they have um, helped you find some sort of grounding in the midst of that, uh, I guess, emotional turbulence? Yeah, definitely. And, and definitely, I guess, you know, for, for me, the, the as for many, the, the, the kind of centrepiece is the, is the twice daily meditation. Um, and, and I find that that's been really 
significant to just keep coming back back to that practice and and in a sense which is a practice of letting go in that you know 20 or half minutes or 30 minutes of of trying to manage everything and 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 kind of solve everything and just coming back to that basic ground I think has been really significant um and I think the other piece of contemplative practice that's been important it's not like I'm necessarily always um, exemplary at, at, at this, but that basic dynamic of um, seeking to to be with what is, not not to resist what is and to, um, you know, in that sense not be unduly anxious about what you cannot change. So that, that, that idea of kind of leaning in, as the Buddhists would say, to the sharp points, you know, just kind of leaning into the discomfort, um, I think has also been an important practice. I think yeah. that's a, a really good insight because I think for, for many, um, certainly for myself, that is where so much of the difficulty has come from is the resistance, the, you know, Googling for good news for when this all might end and, having conversations about will we be able to take a holiday in December or January or, you know, all of this hoping that things will change rather than finding peace as they currently are. Uh, I'm interested to throw this as well at you, as uh, Sue and Peter, because I know both of you have also run meditation online through this period. How have you found that that experience from your perspective? I might start with you, Sue. I, I found it surprisingly good. Like, uh, although nothing beats face to face, I've been astonished at just how meaningful it has been to gather with a group of people and just sit in silence. We, the, uh, you know, we, we pray together and have that period where we're just conscious of each other's presence there still. And um, the faithfulness of that for me has been the bedrock across this time. I've, it's been the one piece, if I had to shed everything else across this time that I'm trying to do in ministry, that would be the last thing that would go. The morning meditation um, that I'm doing with, we're doing the, the morning office and then with meditation and I just wouldn't lose that. It's been, it's been where the sure footing that I, I step out of bed every day and have, have that there and um, been, been very um, strengthening in terms of relationship and community too. What about you, Peter? Um, very similar. Um, I, I'm, it, I think it's been that chance to be still that has um, been the greatest gift in this whole turmoil. And as Sarah was saying, you're leaning into what is, uh, I think it's really important because it also helps has helped me realize that now it's not about getting back to normal it's actually about embracing what is becoming and you know, in many ways if, if we can embrace that becoming um, I think we're going to it could be a time of great um, grace for the world because you know we were we, we are still uh, running headlong into the climate crisis, pretending that's not going to happen, and hopefully realising how fragile it all is and how complex life is through the intervention of a very small virus that none of us can see will give us the opportunity to take stock and actually reflectively come out of this rather than just simply trying to jump back to 
normality in adverted commas and um it for me is it's been able to stop and take stock that's given me the opportunity to begin to embrace the potentiality rather than just trying to fix it oh i think there's been a sense in which for the past 50 or so years as we've chatted about many times on this podcast life has been very safe very secure and you can almost medicate your way through an entire life um without having to confront too much uncertainty or fear or or unknowing and and in a sense this feels like a a bit of a global initiation into some of these harder truths of life do you agree with that is that how you see it sarah yeah i I do and and you know with Peter and, and, you know, and many commentators are saying this, you know, that this is an, a kind of an opportunity for some kind of, you know, recalibration of a, a, and, and, and reimagining. Um, but at the level that I guess we're interested in that, that will, that can only happen if, if people can, you know, ex- expand that repertoire of being, I guess. Um, and if, 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 we, if if all people know and want to get back to is is you know avoiding <laughs> some of the, the the truths or some of the, their vulnerability or whatever, then that's going to be much harder to do that deeper risk that many of us are hoping for. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I, I suppose many people probably aren't aware that there is another way of being. They probably you know, from the moment they they are initiated into this world where you go from primary school to high school to maybe further study or to work. And there's just this sort of um, always the next mountain challenge that never lets you look further beyond that or or look any deeper than that. So do you think this might be a, a time that people even on their own are waking up to the fact that there is more to this life? Yeah, I mean, I... I think so because um, it's not it's not just the bigger picture sense of uncertainty or all of a sudden things look a bit more fragile than we realised or whatever that's part of it. But I think it's also many people will be having a lived experience of something more like monastic life <laughs> than they've ever had, you know, perhaps more more time alone or more time not filled with activities, um, more, more time to get bored or to, you know, to let some of those more difficult emotions um, come to the surface. And so as that happens, um, just as it did in the kind of desert monastic setting there's this you know uh, there's a sense in which you can't you can't unknow that um there's a you know p- people have a a felt experience of that and, and even i think in you know kind of church circles we might teach about desert monasticism and people say oh yes that's interesting and that happened back then and but but to have a a kind of a, a felt experience of Acadia or a felt experience of, you know, um, the night terrors or whatever um, kind of opens people in a different way and maybe maybe encourages them to seek in a different way. Um, again, not everybody, obviously, but I guess I'm hoping that it might have a, have a, a deepening effect for more people. I suppose there, there seems to be a, 
an opportunity, but it, it comes with an element of risk as well because if people don't have the appropriate um, tools or even knowledge that there are tools or, or that there is another way of being through this, that um that you know that they might be like some of the early desert fathers and mothers were they might be driven crazy they might actually when confronting this this silence when confronting this monastic way of living they might have withdrawal symptoms from the the missing the life they were and just be driven a little bit crazy how do you think i guess for without without sending an email out to every human on the planet about here are some contemplative tips to help your way through this <laughs> How can, um, I guess, people who maybe don't have access to the, the depths of this tradition, how do you think they can still stumble upon some of these truths? Is it still possible without, you know, having read about St. Francis and, you know, the contemplative way? Um, I, I think it is. I mean, I think what you express is really well put, Dom, and reminds me of something I read about um, um, people who, who are growing old and, and perhaps going into, you know, the frail age state and, and going into aged care, which is um, a, another kind of challenge which isn't so different from, from this. And I read one author who wrote of that as a time of, uh, for many people, high spiritual risk and low spiritual resource. Mm. And, and, and I feel that that is true for our society as a whole. This is a time of high spiritual risk and low spiritual resource um, by and large um, and the danger of that I think is that the response just stays at the therapeutic level so all the stuff about looking after your mental health and you know lots of lots of frantic connecting with people to make sure they're okay I mean that's that that's good and there's nothing wrong with that but if it if that's just at the level of kind of distracting people then it's not that deeper um, you know that deeper engagement. So, but but like you say, how do you make that known or available or encourage people or support people on that way? Um, I mean, there is a lot around on the internet. <laughs> you know, there are lots of different, <laughs> um, you know, religious or groups from many different traditions and and you know and some of the deeper. Um, um, you know, not explicitly religious, but spiritual stuff, seeking to offer this kind of thing. So, so I do think if people are looking at that level, there is stuff to find. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't feel like I have a particular insight about that. We, you know, different groups of us can offer things. How how you make that known? I don't know. I don't know, Sue and Peter, if you have thoughts about that. Yeah, I I think people are encountering it at that same experiential level in the same way that we are experiencing the being shut away and the, some of the stimulus being removed and some of the frenetic activity removed. We also are experiencing when we go outside and look up at the sky, you know, that sense of of um, the beauty of things again. And and uh, I think through through nature and we've just in Queensland they've just uh, lifted the restrictions a little to allow us to go. 50 k's from home and go and have a picnic and of course everyone's out there having having a picnic but going out and uh finding natural spaces and i do think that changes um your wiring a bit i think and there is a sense of that is very meditative when you take time to pay attention to the natural world so i think that's one way that people are experiencing it for themselves it's funny you say that too because actually 
I went for a drive with my family up to the mountains um, just on the weekend, just gone, um, we're recording this, and had that similar moment where we're standing in this area of natural beauty so close to my house that, of course, I'd never been to before, that in the normal way of things, you know, on, on that particular day, I would have had, I think it was going to probably go to the football that night and maybe have dinner with some people beforehand, and the day would have all been structured around activity and activity and activity. But this this having nowhere necessarily to be is so foreign. I guess my question um, sort of does tie back to what I was asking earlier, Sarah, in the, in the sense of how much of this initiated initiation into a contemplative way of being happens almost automatically when you leave humans on their own into this way of, of, of living. Does, is there a sense in which you start to orient more um, in this direction uh, as you have that time or, or does it not, do you think it, it requires uh, intentionality to, to make that leap? No, I, I do think it, 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 it happens. And I, I really like what Sue said. I, I think that's right. I th- and lots of people, I think, are having that experience that you described of, of kind of suddenly noticing something that they just haven't haven't had enough space either outwardly or inwardly to notice before and, and kind of and, – and, and then – and then what spontaneously arises is love, you know, love, love for the world, <laughs> love for the beauty. Um, so I do think there's something natural about it. So, yes, it's not that everyone has to suddenly, you know, do a course on <laughs> Christian mysticism or something. It, it, it is, it, 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 it um, you know, so that's a, a hopeful thing, I think, and, and that if people get a taste for that. I, I guess it's a little bit in the same way that you hear these stories about the um, the natural world also kind of coming back to life in certain respects because we're not all driving our cars and all those pictures of wildlife doing things that we haven't seen them do. There's this, all, all that's required is the space to be created and then, and then kind of let the space bring forth um, a kind of goodness um, and and maybe that's true of the ecology of the human heart as well as the as the natural ecology as things perhaps shift or as we do resume some of the other activities is that just going to be a, a glimpse that we all had once upon a time in 2020 or can we you know cu- cultivate this and kind of um, understand this as a possible way of being that's the that challenge we isn't it Mm. It's a it's a good point because I suppose you know if suddenly tomorrow a global cure was found mm. or a vaccine was found and we were all you know from from five pm tomorrow life was back to normal. Yep. How many people would take an insight from this and how many would just be dying to get back to that pace that yeah. sense of um pace they've become addicted to a little bit. Mm, yep. I'm I'm just interested how we can you know mm. in, as people of faith and in communities of faith work on incorporating these the truths and and the fruits that have come from this time into actually going forward into a different way of being what are your thoughts Mm. on that peter how that can be done Um, well firstly i think we have to narrate our experience we actually have to capture this Um, as as i've been sitting here i've been really mindful of how fleeting these moments can be in um in 2001 when the um the the terrorists uh, hit the twin towers i remember george bush a, a couple of days after after the um 
after the terror incident, went on national television and I remember watching him and he said, why do these people hate us? And there was this pregnant pause for about five seconds and I thought, this is the pivotal moment. He's asked the real important question, the, re- the question that is going to invite this nation into reflection. And he paused and then he went on to say, their hatred is misguided because we're good people. And, and I could see, I, I could actually feel in myself this op- like the, the opportunity open up of this is the moment of transformation. He's asked the right question. And five seconds later it closed back down and within weeks they were invading Iraq and playing the old paradigm. And I thought, that moment... If someone else had just said to him, George, that is the, you know, if someone else in the administration had said, George, that is the question, let's explore it. And I think there is this moment, and, and, this, and I think this is our task in this, this time, is to, to narrate things like we're talking about now, that people are experiencing something that's life-giving and different, um, and to, to be people who invite that same sort of questioning so that we can ask what sort of life do we want to live having experienced this what do we want what do we want to be living when we come out of this and we're already in danger of losing that moment because you know, as, as we're making this recording our government is already starting to talk about using the same language which was language about looking after people and making sure people didn't get sick the same language about flattening curves is now being applied to economic data. Mm. And so the old paradigm is already saying, enough of that. You've indulged yourself for a whole three or four weeks sitting around looking at, this, at the meteor showers and thinking that the world is sweet and lovely and all of that sort of stuff. But we've got to get back. And so this is, you know, we, we are charged with this moment of actually doing our best to try and uh, cast that alternate narrative, which is being taken up by other people too. Um, but we have to have to seize the moment because just like George Bush's five-second opportunity, it lasts just that long and then the old power order closes in and says, well, enough of that. Mm. So we really have to, you know, we have to be intentional, um, doing what we're doing now, making this podcast is actually part of creating the different narrative and inviting people into that wonderful space of, so what do we want it to look like? I, I think there's a really important point you're making there because it's actually out of silence that we recover your voice, really, that what you're describing is the closing down of, of a hopeful moment is because the, the chatter and the relentless drive of the of normality, the way things have always been and the way you expect it to be just closes in and we don't have time to listen. And so you need the silence in order to find your voice. Now, I was invited um, with some friends to a Zoom meeting last night with the Australian Conservation Foundation and they were doing their, – their question was the most beautiful thing ever, to be invited to a meeting where they just wanted to listen to us and they asked me, what is the world that you guys are dreaming about? 
And what a beautiful thing. And this is the same thing. How are we narrating this? And I think in finding the voice, we actually uh, hopefully can find our solidarity and the power that we have in our voices when people locally group together and and say we want the world to be different we want there to be a shift from this and we want to resist that urge to just snap back to the way things were i think that's it's a really good point about how brief this window can be as well to to ask that question it's it's very funny because obviously the three of you as um uh, people who work in the spiritual space you, you are as much as I know, sometimes it can be hard maybe just to, to make time for all the stuff when life is at its busiest, even still in, in this sort of work, but you are surrounded by these traditions and these resources. Mm-hmm. But I'm even, I, I, I do some work with the Brisbane Lions Australian Rules Football Club. Um, uh, and I was talking with their head of well-being just the other day, uh, who works, looks after the welfare of the players. And, and he was telling me, you know, these young professional athletes between 18 and, and 30 odd, he was telling me about how he's really that they chart their mental health and their mental well-being. They have a whole bunch of ways they do this every single day throughout their careers. And he said, and we are really astonished because over the past month, our players are actually showing better signs of happiness, contentment, joy, love than they would normally show. And we've had all these meetings figuring out what's going on here because normally they're earning a lot more money. They're playing in front of tens of thousands of people their life you would think has a lot more sense of purpose winning this weekend's game or whatever but he said they're just at home with their families and their partners in some cases for the first time if they got drafted to the club from interstate maybe for the first time in in a decade and their happiness contentment sense of meaning is higher than ever and and they're kind of as an organization they're trying to figure out what this is sort of saying to them Mm. and um (laughs) and he he made the comment after that to me um that he thinks the first week back is going to be a really bizarre week mm. because people have become used to a different way of being and getting used to being back in a workplace and giving that amount of time to an organization or a purpose is going to seem a little bit foreign at first. And that just makes me think that that is that small window, that at the moment there is this small window for those footballers and that football club, which is, a, I guess, one potential example of what is the case with people all over the planet but that's their small window to ask how do we get here is this exactly the way forward or can we dream i guess a a different path out um so i suppose then the narrative then would you say peter for example the narrative is so important that that it's made clear that it's not about going back Mm. but about going forward yep and and that we that i think part of the narrative narrating it is to say there was never a normal and uh, what because we've got we've yeah we're being presented with this idea that what we and i hear it all the time when the cafe is open we'll be back to normal when we can do this we'll be back to normal when we can go to the footy we'll be back to normal um whatever is coming is not going to be the normal we used to have and so we have this opportunity to say so what do we want normal in inverted commas in other words our life to look like now but we have to we have to narrate the opportunity we have to um instead of catastrophizing which and there are certainly catastrophic elements to this but instead of just saying this is a catastrophe we have to get over so we go back to normal we have to be narrating it in terms of life is always complex stuff is always happening 
Um, this is in mac- macrocosm what a lot of people live all the time anyway. You know, we, we tend to smooth over or see as aberrations many of the normal parts of, in inverted commas, normal parts of life. There are people who are living in chaos in their homes from domestic violence or relationships that don't nurture them, uh, people who are dealing with all sorts of illness, um, their biology is working against them. Um, and that's just the way it is. And we've turned it into uh, normal life is, as you said before, sort of a medicated, sort of safe, middle-class, uh, aspirational thing. And anything that doesn't fit that is somehow something to be fixed or clinicalised or just or dismissed or, run, or just not even part of the narrative. It's sort of, we, we've always had that winner's story of, you know, gold medalist says see this is any, anyone can anyone can do anyone can achieve their dreams just look at me um that's sort of, which is the story we keep telling ourselves so we have to have this alternate narrative that says life is complex there's lots of stuff to be engaged with um and invite ourselves to in, to to embrace the complexity and then to um, recognize what's emerging what is the new thing that's emerging out of people liking to spend time looking at the sky at night what's that saying about how we really want to live mm. I suppose there's something interesting isn't there in the fact that we've always spoken about this particular religious tradition of Christianity being countercultural, mm. and um, and the culture finally is is all the culture we're living in at the moment is countercultural to the culture we were, mm, mm. culture we were in before. So, yep. in a sense, there is some affinity between the two. Mm. Um, it is. It, I suppose it's it's interesting when you think about the 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 idea that to many people, in, including many of this religious tradition, probably would would think that Christianity isn't about necessarily waking up to a different way of being in the world but is just about a different set of beliefs or a different set of uh, behaviours, maybe, is a better way of putting it. Um, I, I'm just... Um, I guess I'm just curious if people go looking for something deep that matches where their soul is at in this time, I'm just wondering how many of the spiritual traditions that exist in the world today are going to be suitable to 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 meeting that task. Do you think that this, this is somewhere deep in the core of... of the spiritual traditions that people will find or do you think this has been lost even within the so many parts of the church i mean i think it is the deep core of all the traditions the contemplative i think is is the deep core (laughs) of all the traditions um yeah and as peter was talking i was made me think of something that uh parker palmer writes about in his book the active life and he talks about He's never been great at contemplation as a spiritual discipline, you know, as meditation or silence or solitude. But he talks about the way in which life itself um, brings you to the contemplative space, whether you like it or not, in these kinds of moments of times of crisis or times of where the, a, a bunch of illusions is stripped away or, a, you know, you find yourself in this uncharted space. So it's a bit like... I think in different ways we've been saying it's like the culture as a whole has stumbled into a contemplative moment (laughs) Um, 
which is the moment of Bush's question as well. And it's, it's that moment where you, where something kind of suddenly wakes you up and you haven't yet closed down the space with the old answer or the old, you know, certainty. Um, but, yeah, but, Dom, your question about well, will, will people find a way of, in the traditions, you know, the established religious traditions of, trusting themselves to this space really I think part of what we're saying is we actually and it's the same with the Brisbane Lions you know if if this space is going to become fruitful we've got to entrust ourselves to it for a while we've, we've got to let ourselves inhabit this space of of unknowing or oh that turned out what I thought how things were turns out maybe to be non-necessary or you know whatever and as Peter says then let the way emerge out of that out of that listening and out of that um, unknowing. So I found myself in a way hoping this will go on for longer because I, I sort of feel like <laughs> if we're allowed to snap back, too many of us will just snap back. Um, and but the longer it goes on, the harder that becomes. Um, and and I, I just wonder, you know, but I, I don't mean by that I'm in saying that I'm conscious don't have work or you know for whom this really that's a well um and i i guess in terms of the church then part of what i wonder about how does say just to take it you know the christian tradition and the churches what would it be for us to keep inviting people to inhabit this space even as things return to normal like are we too just going to get back with our busy round of activities and our, all our different groups that meet and, you know, um, our programs and, you know, because because that's what keeps, that's what keeps our tr the church and our tradition um, just locked at a certain level, you know, which is not a very deep level, you know, at a level of um, good intentions and, and you know, nice middle-class behaviour and, you know, and I, I don't want to belittle that, that that's, you know, that there are good intentions and there are, but but to to get it, to, to let us inhabit this uncomfortable space for longer, um, are we going to be capable of, of <laughs> encouraging people <laughs> to do that and what might that look like and, and make available to others who, who might then be sufficiently unsettled by what they've just been experiencing that they're going looking, that, that, that they, they do realise, oh, sheesh, I've been living my life at a certain level and I realise it's not adequate to something like this. I love the, the word uncomfortable that you use there, the, that it's an uncomfortable space. It's something that, um, that I have found as much as, you know, I, I do uh, feel a sense of peace and calm and awareness of the beauty around me at some times. There's other times where I have had, you mentioned night terrors earlier. I've had my dreams have been more vivid than usual. And I think a number of people have reported that at the moment that the, the dream life is very vivid. There's also been times where I have just been overwhelmed with a, a sense of, um, I don't know what you call it, some sort of nostalgia, but, but almost as though I'm uh, seeing things and the, the people in my life who have cared about me along the journey who I missed because I was so busy. I was just reflecting the other day on a, a friend I had in primary school who I've not chatted to for 15 years who was, um, you know, completely uh, just a, a really kind, genuine friend 
who I never really noticed much at the time and never really gave any thought to. So that that's all offset with this this sense of um, I guess fear. It's a much less comfortable way of living. It's a much less insulated way of living. I'm much more prone to to maybe existential angst can pop in, or I'm much more prone to I guess the the ghosts and the 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 darkness that's always that always feels like you're turning your eye away from in our culture. You know, oh oh, I don't want to feel that sense of existential angst tonight. I'll go to the movies. Oh, I don't want to confront that that grief I'm feeling tonight. I'll, I'll just go watch a footy game or whatever it might be. That has been, you know, as we said, medicated. It's really easy to not have to confront this stuff. And and I, I guess I'm just wondering for people who are, who do have this desire to return to what life was, who do want to get back to that level of stimulus and that medicated way of living because it was really comfortable for many people most of the time. Why why shouldn't they? What's what is on offer? What is on offer? I don't want to make it like we're marketing contemplative life necessarily, <laughs> but but you know why why for someone listening to this thinking yeah that's all true and I have enjoyed parts of the quieter pace, but geez I can't wait until I can have all this back in my life again. Why shouldn't they want that? Why 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 is that not necessarily the most life giving way forward? That is a really good question, Dom. <laughs> I'd say for starters, we, we can't ha- have it all. One of the mm. things is mm. it's not even an, an option. Mm. I think one of um, – I was woken up at 1.50 a.m. on Monday morning because my smartphone, despite me deleting all of these wonderful future events from my calendar, my smartphone had decided to set an alarm to say you need to be on a flight, which was very depressing because I was on a flight to go and visit my daughter in Scotland, which, of course, was not happening. And, uh, I, and I lay there thinking, you know – we just there's some things we just need to let go of our uh, ability to have it all to to we manipulated our world so much things are so instantaneous we've been able to get what we want um and so part of the when you talk about why would we uh, in some ways there's no other way in some ways we need to sit back be a, a lot more um have a lot more humility in the face of life and death, I think, and to go, well, we, we can't have it all. We can't um, go back to old patterns because not only because we shouldn't choose to, because essentially, you know, we have most of us, you know, lived reasonably selfish lives you know when it comes to getting things for ourselves and that's not to self-flagellate that's just to say our world has been oriented towards achieving your goals and achieving a, a comfortable way of life and that's pretty normal but we can't continue to do that at the expense of, of others and at the expense of the planet so we actually um, have to find a different way I'm not sure it's an option. Also, just your story before Dom about the Brisbane Lions provides some of the answer too. Here, here, are, here is a bunch of people who, in the middle of a crisis, are actually reporting that they feel happier, more fulfilled. Um, and so the question is, and and hopefully the Lions people, as they're looking at it, because they're they're asking the question. So why is it so? Will come up with the answer because this is a better way to live mm. and then so you know, I, I think again it comes down to narrating so if people can capture for themselves the benefits they've experienced despite the fact that we're in a time of disruption 
how the disruption has provided something that they didn't expect, then that is the key to as to why they might want to keep it. You know, the Brisbane Lions players might discover that there's something about what they have discovered that they need to safeguard and work out how they live that life going forward while playing football. Mm. So they don't snap back, but they actually change life based on what they've enjoyed. So how do we make time to go and enjoy nature rather than fantasizing about it? It's a really good point, I think. And uh, I'm interested in the analogy you drew earlier, Sarah, with people as they're, they're getting into the latter years of their life often have that moment of, of high spiritual need, low spiritual resource. And in that instance, you know, quite, quite scientifically, logistically, you can't go back. Going back isn't an option when you reach that point. You can't go back to when your kids were young and you're a young parent again. You can't go back to when you maybe were advancing through the business world that there is no path back I, I just suppose in this culture you know it was only yesterday i was reading the i think it was the ceo of Qantas saying we we will be offering um cheap flights jet star flights for maybe 19 dollars sydney to melbourne to get people back into back into the swing of things and back into you know traveling around go and see the country and it won't be too long until you know the mentality is is plan your big australian holiday and go out and go to the movies when they reopen and go to all your local restaurants and, and go see your friends and, and just add things into your week again and again and again. There, I suppose while you are right, Sue, in that there, there will not be a way to reclaim what was in its fullness, the dominant, strong dominant cultural messaging will be to reclaim as much of it as possible, to sweep as much of it in as we possibly can. And I'm just wondering how you firstly are awake to that message, but then also can hold your own ground against such a strong dominant cultural force and say, well, actually, no, I'm not sure that I, I do want to, to get as much of it back as I can. How do you hold your ground, I guess, is I guess my question. Yeah, one thing comes to mind, and that is the relationships that we're building across this time. I, I don't know. I'm sure it's not just me. I'm building relationships with new people um, who are coming into groups, mainly virtual, you know, connections. But... Um, I want to – it strengthens me immensely to these relationships from others who are like – who are dreaming for a better world and the thought that actually we could we could make a change that really um, is lasting at this – in this time of um, the, 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 the pandemic as a portal idea to, to a new way of being. I think the only way we will discover that new way of being is if we do it together and as if we hold on to those relationships and to the inspiration of other people who are using their gifts in remarkable ways to to actually find uh, um, a new strength and solidarity, I think, to say we don't want this. We, we actually want to be able for everyone to have a living wage you know we've worked out that new start surely will never go back to the to the low level it was at after so many have lived this experience and gone you cannot live on that you know we want a world where people aren't uh, are able to buy enough to eat we want a world where we know our neighbors and we walk down the street and many of us have got to know neighbors better from the, all the walking around in our local area we want a, a world where um as a as a community we can um imagine 
imagine together uh, a, a space that's not about big business but actually gives us back some agency for the way we want our communities to look? What, what do you think, Sarah, on that front? Because uh, the agency seems to be the key point of this in that um, it's, it's relatively unlikely the Prime Minister is going to come out and say, I found this a really deep, soulful time, so I've decided we're going to change. You know, with the Cabinet, we've all decided... The economy's been good. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It, you, you would think it's unlikely that there's going to be a, a government-led awakening of the soul and commitment to living soulfully going forward because, you know, governments are elected on economies and that, that is their paradigm. That's what they work on. So the, the agency of each of us individually and in communities together to do this, I suppose there is a level of intentionality, isn't there, that's going to be required of saying as Peter says, narrating it, of, of saying individually and together, well, the rest of the world might try to, to reclaim that pace, but we will decide not to. Or, or not even, not. it's not just about pace, but the rest of the world will reclaim this way of seeing things, but we actually want to keep um, the insights that we've gained here. How important is it, I guess, for people who have had that sort of experience to maybe take some time to sit down and journal or, or whatever it might be and actually make that sort of a commitment individually that, no, I, I will not be pulled back into the, the rip, I suppose. Mm. I mean, I think this is a this is such a key question and I say, you know, there are times I, I, I feel a bit despairing about it because I do feel, you know, the, the power of the vested interests and, and, and the, the paradigm um, that'll, you know, the economic paradigm, which which also whether, whether individuals want to or not um, can, might draw them back in because that's just the price of their employment, you know, like, like you, you, you have to, you have to have these many meetings or you have to, you know, and so, um, yeah, so I, I, and I guess I was thinking, Peter, when you were talking about narrating the experience that, you know, that we've been talking about that people, more people are having, I think part of that is we also need to narrate this or re-narrate this story that we keep hearing about the economy as if it is, you know, a thing out there set absolutely in stone. You couldn't create a different kind of one. You could, you know, like, mm-hmm. or the economy demands X, Y, Z. Like that needs to be narrated and re-narrated yes. too, which obviously many people are trying to do. You know, there's there's a lot of work on that. Um, so, so, yeah, I do think if we're going to, all the things that people have been saying, I think, will matter. That that we can articulate it. That you know, so that people can tell their own story, and and um, that communities can can gather and tell that story. That there can be, I mean, you know, it's almost like there needs to be. Uh, uh, the model is of kind of civil disobedience. Mm. Um, it's it's a bit, you know, of of of, of groups of people looking for ways mm. not to just get unquestioningly co-opted back into mm. something which is destructive and and um and and you know how that happens um 
what what that kind of a social movement looks like, what kind of leadership that requires. You know, I don't really know, but I think it does need intentionality. It does need leadership um, because otherwise um, I don't doubt for a minute that there's huge numbers of people who are thinking along these lines or who would resonate with this, but it'll it'll it kind of dissipates into, mm. into lots of individual frustrations and senses of failure or thwarting or whatever. Um, but I said, yeah, the, the question of leadership, I guess, and, and the harnessing of this mm. Uh, mm. seems important, I think. If it's just lots of disparate communities coming together to have this conversation, I don't, I don't know I'm, if, if that's enough. I think the tradition also, I think we have to um, reinvigorate uh, some of the really ancient ideas from the tradition, like the idea of idolatry. Uh, you know, the, econom the economy has become an idol and a false god that is an absolute and we have to bow down to Moloch and sacrifice our children to it and... Um, I think I think we you know the tradition actually says to us it's very dangerous to give something the characteristic of being unchangeable and definitive and absolute um, and you know the economy has become that uh, and I think I think the tradition we have to, says we have to use the language and and and, and refresh the language so instead of an idol being some sort of spiritualized idea it's actually an ever-present human tendency is to make them and then to bow down before them and to give yourself over to them and and you know, and to sacrifice your kids i mean you know we're talking about sending kids back to school and you know i'm i'm not a really convinced that that's based on good medical advice rather it's doing some calculus about what the economy needs and who who we need to free up to go to work and all those sort of questions that mean that we're in the grip of an idolatrous relationship and you know and, and we have to remember that the desert mothers and fathers eventually had to go into the desert because the idolizing culture of which they were a part was just so strong that they realized they couldn't beat it mm -hmm. so we might have to find our own desert mm -hmm. that's great i love yeah. that analogy i think it's so helpful yeah, I, I think it's very important i think we also the our tradition is of no use to us when we've fallen into the same idolatries too absolutely and so where we've made scripture an idol that's yeah. absolutely useless to us now yeah. in how do we imagine the future how do we actually listen to god and work out and and um sarah i've loved your lectures around virtue because i think how do we actually discover that goodness and walk into what a good society would look like um, listening um, and actually empowered by the Spirit and, and with that sense of uh, union with God at the heart of, of Christian faith as against an idolatry of Scripture, an idolatry of a certain kind of doctrine or moralism, which will be useless to us now in imagining the future. So we, we need to discard all of those idols, including some of our own favourites. Absolutely. <laughs>
<laughs> Particularly our own favourite. <laughs> Pick your favourite yeah. and then start there. Yes. Um, something I, I, I did just want to um, cover before we do move to, to the end of this conversation, Peter, was something that you said in preparation uh, for this conversation. I, I know a lot of people feel like they're seeing things maybe more clearly now. They're seeing the people who matter to them. They're seeing how maybe that career advancement that seemed the be-all and end-all three months ago actually isn't as important as a, a home-cooked meal with the people they live with potentially. Um, and, on, and when we were chatting last week before this episode, you mentioned Thomas Merton, um, obviously one of the, the probably more well-known contemplative Christians of recent times, and how actually his life is evidence that, that living a contemplative way actually does help you see all of life in a much more clear and almost prophetic way. I just wondered if you want to touch on that briefly about um, about how that enabled him. Sure, and I think that's one of the gifts that the contemplative, the contemplatives will offer. This process is uh, um, Merton. Merton predicted the race riots in the U.S. many years before they happened, and when they did happen, people said to him, "How did you see that? How did you see that coming?" And his response was, "How could you not see it coming?" Um, and he, he said that if you want to see that as prophetic, by all means do, but he was pointing out that he, as a contemplative, was a little bit removed from the hurly-burly of society and could see where society was heading and that those who were in the midst of it couldn't see what he thought was the bleeding obvious, that if you mistreat, if you mistreat a whole bunch of people, then eventually they're going to rise up um, and say we don't want to put up with this anymore. So he just said, "This is you know the way you're treating these people is this is what's going to happen." And people who were in the middle of it couldn't see it. So I think the gift that the contemplatives will give us in this time is they can also show us what will happen if we don't heed, if we do keep trashing the planet. You know, our prophets are the environmentalists at the moment. They're people who can see that if we keep sacrificing the planet to the idol of the economy, that we're going to end up with a catastrophe that's much worse than COVID-19. Um, and so those that those contemplative voices need to be amplified as much as possible. It's a very interesting point. I know um, in January and February when the news about the virus started to spread, um, you know, it sounded like a bad thing and a worrying thing, but we, you know, I, I know I certainly didn't really take it too seriously. I actually remember um, my girlfriend Bronte and I having dinner with Sue in maybe late February or early March, and and we had a conversation about it. But even then, I thought, well, it's not really going to affect us, is it? And it's not going to be that bad. And then suddenly you get in the midst of it, and you realise, oh no, that we we actually did have all the warning and see mm. this one coming. Yeah. But but you know, it was just sort of wasn't the immediate danger and so it just sort of sat in the back of the mind and i guess we never actually imagined society could be this badly disrupted and the climate emergency does seem like there are a lot of scary parallels there in terms of um feels like a lot of us uh maybe are viewing that in the same way we viewed this virus in january or february but the march and april are coming um unless action is taken that's a one for i guess another day and that will probably be a long conversation that comes out of this globally um from from many um corners i suppose just as a, a way of wrapping up though i wanted to talk briefly because it's been on my mind all through this conversation about ken wilber's work um that i'm i've read a bit of his book um 
it's a very dense book, but the religion of tomorrow, Ken Wilber, who obviously uh, I don't actually know where he's from, but he's quoted a lot by Richard Rohr and um, and that's where I've come across his work. But he s- essentially speaks about how we've created a culture exclusively of growing up with no ability to wake up. Um, you know that that they're that these are the two great paradigms of uh, of human maturing, if you want to put it that way, growing up and waking up and that there hasn't been space for waking up in our world. Is the sense, I suppose, at the end of this conversation and in the midst of this time that more people than ever in the past century maybe have started to wake up? Maybe we're still a bit drowsy and we're clearing the sleep out of our eyes, but but that there is sort of almost a path before us. Do you want to stay awake or do you want to, um, you know, roll back over and go back to sleep? Is is that sort of how how an image that you see, Sarah, is resonating with with the contemplative approach at the moment? Yeah, that that's a lovely way of putting it, and it resonates very very much. Um, I, I think part of what this has done, this disruption, and the way in which the economy, the economy, but you know the everything about our social life, you know, within the space of two weeks could suddenly just change. Um, what it does is relativise it all. Um, and even though we've been talking about a fear that we might back and think of that as normal, actually what we've also seen is we could make different choices. It's all been things that were unthinkable. Oh, we can't possibly afford to new start to increase. We can't possibly, you know, ban cars we can't possibly ban the aviation industry all of a sudden oh we just did that (laughs) so (laughs) (laughs) you know um who'd have thought that Mm. in january Mm. and 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 so this has been this massive relativization of of all of this and i think that does again enable some possibility of a waking up like a waking up that the sense that it, it, it we just made it up. It's provisional. It's not built into the structure of the universe. It's just something we do and we could do something different. Um, and so that that is the wisdom moment uh, that, that that's here. Um, of course, we've also been talking about the danger of just rolling over and going back to sleep, but I think that becomes harder to do in a really absolute way. Like who's going to believe Scott Morrison anymore when he says we can't possibly afford to raise new stuff? Mm. There's things that just can't be said anymore. That's a really, really good point. Um, Well, we might leave this conversation there. There's so many other avenues we could take, but I I, I think this is certainly uh, for where I've been lately, mentally and spiritually, this is speaking a, a... a lot of resonance and I'm sure it would be to, to many people as well. Um, it's sort of, again, it's hard to know what the next few months are going to be like here in Australia, um, let alone overseas where this is much less of maybe a lifestyle change and much more of a an impending crisis, well, not impending, a current crisis with drastic loss of life. But uh, I suppose as things do continue to shift and change, the invitation is always there to 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 just be intentional about what you've taken from this and, and carve a different path forward is is that i guess the the point to, to close it on that that this the, the most important element of this is intentionality essentially we're all nodding yeah we're all nodding yes <laughs> <laughs> Podcast, isn't it? We, you need you need we need someone to say yes we all say yes <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yes. Well, I suppose that's a that's a, a good place to, to leave things then. Well, thank you, Sarah, so much for making time to, to dial in as our first of a virtual guest. Thank you very much. It's been a, I really enjoyed the conversation. It's been great. Thank Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, and, um, wonderful, Sarah. Thank you very much. And uh, we will be back with another episode of the On The Way podcast shortly.